how's everybody doing? Let's, uh, awesome. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to revisit verses 19 through 20. As you're turning there, the, the title of the sermon this morning is called Experiencing the Resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. And we haven't, we haven't been in Ephesians for a few weeks, so let's just start in verse 15. Just get the whole paragraph. This is what Paul says. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Here's our text. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand, in heavenly realms. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, this morning we want to recognize the validity and the authority of your word and we want to situate ourselves underneath it. I pray that as Peter would declare that we would pay close attention to the words that the, the prophets spoke. But as your word says, Lord, you, you spoke to us in many ways through the prophets and in these last days you spoke to us through the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're asking that this morning, Lord, we would get more than just a lecture and more than just songs and more than just a teaching and more than just somebody speaking from the stage. We want to be transformed by the very real tangible presence of Jesus Christ. We just to declare together as a church that apart from your presence, Lord, we've got nothing going for us. We've got lights and technology and people and a building and an empty shell. We want desperately for the presence of Jesus Christ to be manifest in this place. And that's your promise, Lord. As John would declare that, Jesus, you dwell among the lampstands, you dwell among the churches, and you dwell here with us. And we're banking on that today, Lord. As we open up your word, you would visit us in a powerful way. We want to leave here being transformed and enjoying Jesus more than we have ever enjoyed him before. God, you are the hero. You are the champion. You are the central figure of the story. And so make your home here. Let us crowd around you and be glorified as we, as we seek your face. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've, uh, we've been in this text for a few weeks as, as we've been going through this, this series in Ephesians. 
And the reason I wanted to hit it again this morning is because it's such a timely verse, especially for what we've been experiencing uh, given last Sunday with Resurrection Sunday as we got to see and witness hundreds of people for the first time in history witness for themselves uh, the experience of being justified in the sight of God when there was no justification for their existence. This is almost a post-resurrection text. And not just for those people on Sunday last week who experienced what it meant to be justified in the sight of God, but for many of us in this building who at one point in our lives, at one point in time, also experienced what it was like to be justified when there was no justification for our existence. In that moment that what the Bible calls being born again, we have discovered what it means to be approved by God when we were doomed. Some of you saw the faces of these people as they were at the bottom, at the altar, weeping and crying and laughing as they discovered for the first time, I have been approved by God. And now as we look at Ephesians, we see what exactly happened and what we're to do in the aftermath of that, post-resurrection. I had myself, uh, me and my wife, Brianna, on our first year anniversary, had a taste of what it meant to be justified, although it was less spiritual. For our one year anniversary, we took a trip to New York City, and as we were going into New York City, we planned to visit a couple churches. One of them uh, was called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And being from reality, we have a a little bit of a history with the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Uh, Britt has often recommended a book by the name of Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, which speaks loudly of prayer. And it has been influential in the life of this church on how to pray. And so going into New York City, we're like, we got to go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. If we got to do anything, we got to make it into Brooklyn and go to this church service and worship with this community just to see what it's like. And decades later, After the church has been thriving, it was way different than what I read in the book. It was no longer seven people. It was thousands of people flocking into this little dilapidated Broadway theater. And as we made our way into the theater, getting ready to worship, the music started and this sense of the Spirit of God began to fall on thousands of people. We were up in the upper tier just getting ready to worship. And then as as the first set ended... Pastor Jim Simbola gets up to the podium and he, he makes some announcements and one of the first things that he did was introduce newcomers and we were in that service on New Year's Day at the time in 2009 and he, he just throws out a greeting. He says, how many of you are here visiting the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, for the first time? Raise your hand. About 100 people raise their hands including Brianna and myself. And then he gives a follow-up question and he says, How many of you are here for the first time that have ever sung in a choir before? Our hands go down. (laughs) But 40 or 50 hands are still raised. And we're just wondering what he's asking. Because as we're there worshiping, we're we're watching the two-time Grammy award-winning Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And they're rocking the boat up until this point. And so we're wondering what what he's getting to. And he, he ushers the announcement. How would you like to sing with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir? Dead silence. (laughs) 
And he says it again. He says, no, I'm serious. How would you like to sing and worship with us? Just come on down. Just leave your seats. Just come to, the, come to the stage. Let's all sing together. And people are freaking out. About 40 people begin to rush the stage and hop on the stage. Just, okay, I don't know. What okay, Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> and I'm sitting there just rejoicing. Like, wow, this is, this is so fun. I'm so happy for these people. But as the wheels begin to spin in my head, I start to lose that happiness. I get a little jealous. I'm like, well, oh, that would be so sweet. I would love to sing with the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. I've waited for this moment. But I've never sung in a choir before. I'm, I am disqualified. <laughs> and as the, as the moment goes on, I begin to justify the reasons why I should be up on that stage. Well, I can sing? What? I, I lead worship. I got soul. I can do all of that stuff. I've never sung in a choir before, but what does that really mean? Like, I've seen choirs sing. I've been on the stage as choirs were singing. I got this down. And I make a beeline for the stage. I jump over the rafter, down the stairs, up on the stage. There's a kid walking in front of me, a small kid. I ask him, hey, what are you? He says, I'm an alto. I'm an alto. I said, all right, we're, we're almost the same size, so I'm probably an alto too. And so I just follow him up on stage, and my heart is just pumped with adrenaline. And I turn around and face thousands of people, and I, something gets stuck in, in the middle of my throat, you know, that, that feeling, and I'm all right, it's all right. I'm here, I'm doing this. And the song starts, and I don't recognize the song, but that's okay, because I got feeling, and I got emotion. And so I get into my best choir stance that I can figure out. I close my eyes and I just start belting. I, I'm learning the song as it's going. I don't know the song, but I'm just humming and belting and closing my eyes. And halfway through the song, I start to, I start to realize that the entire stage is moving. The floor is moving underneath my feet. And I open my eyes for the first time. And the choir is moving, like choirs do. But it's not just the choir. It's thousands of people in the building. They're moving. Like a choir does, right? They sway. But this choir wasn't swaying. They were, they were like... It was like they were marching into battle. And I start to recognize that the whole floor is moving and the choir is dancing to the music. And I start to flip out. And, and I think, oh no, oh no. I've been standing here like this for the whole time. <laughs> Not only that, but everyone in the choir is wearing dark, nice, beautiful suits, and I'm wearing a bright red California plaid shirt on in the middle of the choir, standing up like a pole. <laughs> and so I freak out a little bit, and, and I, I try to copy them, and so I start to move. And as soon as I start to move, my mouth stops singing. I discover that I can't sing and move at the same time. And so I stop singing. And at this point, all the confidence has been drained from my abilities. And at, at, by the time the second song comes along, I start to get it down. I start to sing and move my feet a little bit. But now I'm moving in the opposite direction as the choir. And so I'm like a renegade windshield wiper standing out with my red shirt. I totally don't belong. By the time the worship is over, I walked up to the stage with my head held eye. I left the stage totally embarrassed, totally humiliated, totally dejected. 
And I walk down the stairs. I walk off the podium with my head so hanging so low. I don't want to make contact with anyone. I don't want to look at anybody. I don't want to see their faces when they saw me trying to sing in their choir. I walk off the stage totally de- dejected. And I get stopped by this big fat hand. <laughs> oh no, security is about to eject me because I suck. <laughs> and I look up and it's Pastor Jim Simbala. And he grabs my hand, and he says with a big old smile on his face, thanks for singing with us, man. Thanks for singing with us, man. Well, I don't think you heard me sing, but thanks for that. (laughs) I walked off the stage after that, still humbled, but with my heart slightly lifted. Still humbled to the dust, but my heart slightly lifted. For in that moment, I understood that a group of people that I loved and admired so much had accepted me regardless of my ability or lack thereof. And on Sunday of last, uh, of Resurrection Sunday, there were hundreds of people that for that split moment understood for a second, I have been accepted even though I, I have problems, even though I am a sinner, even though I can't put my life together. I am somehow accepted by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by an alien ability. I have been accepted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and lights begin, eyes begin to light up, tears begin to flow as people begin to figure this out and yet something else happens. Many of you in this room, at some point in your life, you were changed as the Bible declares you were born again. You, in that moment, understood for a second, I have been declared righteous in the sight of God regardless of my lack of ability. And yet Sunday rolls around, you wake up and you recognize it's Monday morning. And then something else happens. The choir's gone. There's no more emotional, inspiring music There's not someone preaching with authority under the anointing. There's not thousands of people crowding around you, uh, encouraging you to walk forward. All of that stuff is gone. You wake up in your own bed, in your own house, with your same problems, all the stuff you suffered through, all the broken relationships, all the trials, everything that you had on Saturday is still there. But you know, I'm justified. So how do these things work together? You recognize that your life, you have been justified in the sight of God, but you also realize that your life is still far from justified in the periphery. And what Ephesians, what Paul is attempting to declare in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1 is that at that moment, you have been given life by Jesus Christ. And now from this point on, he's going to teach you how to breathe. You have been given life at the moment you were born again. Now, He teaches you how to breathe. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practice Resurrection, said it this way. He said, having acquired this identity, how then do we maintain it? We don't carry around our baptismal identity. We don't carry around our our justification like a driver's license, a social security card, or a passport so that we can prove who we are and who we say we are. Our identity is not something exterior to us, It's not a label. It's not a name tag. We live out our identity in the practice of the resurrection. In Ephesians, this passage is speaking to what involves living out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's not only something that we celebrated last Sunday. It is something that we all of a sudden are invited to participate in. And the way that we live it out, the way that you live something out as soon as you are reborn is by beginning to breathe. You begin to breathe out elements of the resurrection. And in verse 18, I'm just going to back up by one verse. We went over this a couple months ago. Paul says, I pray that, the, that your hearts will be flooded with light. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called. In the NLT, it says flooded with light. If you're reading an ESV, it'll say enlightened, that your heart would be enlightened. Or if you're reading an NASB, it'll say that your heart would be illuminated. Paul, I am praying that your heart would be illuminated, enlightened, flooded with light to the hope of God's calling in your life, to the resurrection. Paul is right now stretching the grammar of the Greek language in every possible angle to try to give us the richness of the power of the gospel. We'll put it this way. When you describe situations that happen in the past and in the present, you use certain types of verbiage. I went to the store, verb, uh, past tense verb. I am at the store. I am going to the store. I'm using the present tense verb. I will go to the store next week. I'm using the future tense. That's generally how we interact with history is through these verbs. Paul in the original language had something that we're not quite used to. He had a verb called the uh, perfect tense verb. Forget all the technical jargon. This is what it means. It would be as if you took a past tense verb and a present tense verb and sandwiched them together. In other words, he's describing something that happened in the past that has ongoing ramifications in the future. This shows up all the way through the New Testament. For example, when Jesus is on the cross, he utters these words, it is finished. But he's saying, he's saying, tetelestai, he's using that perfect tense. So he's not just declaring, I died on the cross and it's done. I did something and it's over. What he's saying is, I died on the cross and that work has ongoing implications for the believer. Another example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You have been saved by grace through faith, not by your own works. Paul is saying, you have been saved by grace. He's using that same tense. He's not saying, once at the point of conversion you were saved by grace, but now you better get your rear in gear. You better get with the program. God saved you by his mighty outstretched arm, but now it's up to you to get your way into heaven. He's saying, by grace you have been saved, and you will continue to be saved by the active grace of God. Paul is saying the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. He's saying, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light, enlightened, illuminated. And he's using that same tense. What he's saying is that very same light that caused your conversion on Easter Sunday, on that one summer in 2002, in 1969, when you were three years old, whatever it was, at that point of conversion, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. When you're born again, this is what happens. A light shines into your heart revealing the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Your eyes were spiritually blind by the evil one, by Satan, and Jesus, by the grace of God, manhandles your affections, opens your spiritual eyes. You see Jesus in a saving way. And Paul is referring to that. 
He's saying, that's what happened. That was the original illumination. But I'm praying for more illumination. You were saved by seeing Jesus in a salvific way. It was like this, as if the door just cracked open a little bit. You were blind, but now you see Jesus in such a way that you find yourself strangely allured. But Paul is saying, that's not the end. I want the doors to be blown open wide. I want you to get a glimpse of the Son of God in all of his glory and to enjoy him as such. So salvation, when you're converted, when you're born again, it's not so much as if a light switch is flipped on where there was darkness and all of a sudden it's bright light. It would be more akin to the sun dawning. Imagine yourself walking down a dark beach and not being able to see anything at four in the morning. You can't see the, the, the footsteps in front of you and you are unaware that you are about to walk off a cliff. You continue to walk in that direction towards that cliff because you can't see anything. And all of a sudden, five in the morning, the sun peaks. And it gives just enough light. It emits just enough light to cast away shadows, give detail to the ground, and in a moment you see you're walking in this, in this wrong direction. And so you do what? You turn away from the cliff towards the light. We call that repenting, changing your mind, changing your direction. And so you don't, you don't even, you still don't know where you are. You can't see a, a lot of stuff, but you know that that's the wrong direction, so you walk in this direction. But the sun doesn't just stay there, right? It begins to rise in the sky. And as it does, it casts more light. And so what happens? It illuminates things. Now you're not just functioning. You're not just walking in the right direction. You're starting to see beauty. You're starting to see detail in the sand. You're starting to see the sunset and the ocean waves. You're not just walking away from the danger of the cliff. You're beginning to enjoy the place that you are. Paul is praying the same thing for the Christian. I don't want you to just function in life by the resurrection. I want you to enjoy God. I want your eyes to be illuminated. Peter would say the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. When he would say to a bunch of people listening to him, he would say, hey, you guys, check this out. I've seen the Son of God with my own eyes. I've walked with Jesus. I've talked with the man I've eaten with him. He's taught me things. He's taught me parables. I was there on the mountain when the Father declared his blessing on Jesus. I heard the booming voice. I was there. But you have something more sure. You have the word of the prophets. The word inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says this. You must pay close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. You must pay attention to the scriptures until the day dawns, listen to this, and Christ the morning star shines in your heart. Saying the way that you breathe in the resurrection is by opening the scriptures and reading it and digesting it and pouring over it and eating it up until the morning star, Jesus Christ, shines in your heart. Paul would say all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Peter would say as you're doing it, the the, the presence of Jesus manifests itself in an invisible but tangible way. 
James would take it a step further. He would say, jump in the deep end. He'd say in James chapter 1, verse 21, get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. It has the power to save your souls. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you just fool in yourself. Jesus would pray in John chapter 17, verse 17, Father, make my people holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is the truth. So we see as a testimony throughout Scripture, the way that we breathe in the presence of Jesus, the way that we experience the resurrection is through his word. If we're not in his word, we ain't experiencing nothing. Perhaps some entertainment and a little bit of religion on the side. You want the presence of Jesus, you crack open the inspired scriptures and you dig in and you look for the Son of God and he will show himself. Paul goes on, he says in verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. It's not just that you read the scriptures, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the Son of God in your lives. He says, I pray that you would understand. Look at what he bases his prayer on in verse 19. I pray that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. What kind of power is it? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Paul would say in another letter, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal bodies. He's saying right now, every resource in heaven and every ounce of God's power is right now pointed towards the Christian to align you with the will of God, to get you not just to walk in the right direction, but to enjoy the process. Every spiritual resource in heaven is aimed at the Christian that you might enjoy Jesus. Not just go through the motions. Not just go by. Not just do all of the right Christian things. Not just read your Bible, pray every day and grow, grow, grow. But to enjoy Jesus. Christian life is one in which we are taken by the Spirit of God deeper into a relationship with God. You can think of it as a dress rehearsal. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. But you're practicing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. For others, it's slower. For others, it comes a little quickly. But our lives were designed in this life to go deeper in relationship with God. In another trip uh, that I took with Brianna, it was actually this year, and some things had changed. We're, we're going to have a daughter in the month of August, praise God. God's going to need to raise me from the dead a couple times. And we're so excited about that. I have a little girl. She's just going to be during worship, just running across people on the carpets during worship, just going crazy. But as you would expect, my wife experienced this on a much deeper level than I did, especially initially. She experienced it physically. She experienced it in every possible way that you can possibly imagine. And I remember as we were going through the city of New York, and I was just 
wanting to look at all the tourist attractions, she wanted to buy a onesie. That was her mission in life. (laughs) I need to buy a onesie. I didn't know what those things were until I saw them. I wasn't sure if it was a shirt or a pair of pants or a giant body glove, but we were on a mission to get a onesie. And as I would be tripping out, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, Empire State Building, oh my gosh, all of this stuff, she went to every place with one singular undivided intention. I need to get a onesie for my kid. And she was already experienced, even though she didn't, she, we didn't even know the gender of our child at that point, but she was experiencing the life of this child in a way that I had not yet experienced it. I knew it was true, right? I had it all in my head, just like I can recite certain scriptures about the gospel. It was in my head, the data, the, uh, the, the x-rays, those exams, the doctor's visits, the, the pieces of information that I got off Wikipedia. I knew all of that stuff. We're having a baby. But she knew. And she was overcome by joy in a way that I had to be brought up to speed with. Oh, and she brought me up to speed. (laughs) After a week of running around the biggest city in the world looking for baby stuff, I I started to feel it. And it was somewhat contagious, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, it started to dawn on me, even more so, as I just started to play with these little stuffed animals with the floppy ears and the little pink onesies with the frills and stuff. I was like, oh. And I began to experience what I knew would be true. Peter would say the same thing about Jesus, who we do not see physically. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 8, though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with the glorious inexpressible joy. Brianna knew that. She was experiencing the joy of new birth. And after I spent enough time with her, I started to catch that fire. Something else that Paul will go on to teach us is that the Christian life is breathing in the presence of Jesus Christ. We see that through the scriptures and through prayer. But just like you breathe air and oxygen in, you've got to exhale. If we breathe in the presence and the resurrection of Jesus through scripture and prayer, we exhale through community. This is often where you see the gospel in its most tangible form, is in relationship to one another. This is where I caught the fire in that city with Brianna was as she was living out this joy that she had experienced and it's in community where all of this stuff gets tested. Paul is always speaking about community. We see in our English Bibles, he might say, I also pray for you, but in the original language, he's using what the people in the South might say, y'all. He's almost never speaking about a singular, a singular individual. He's always speaking about a community. He would be saying in verse 19, I also pray for y'all that you'll all understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us. And why is community so important? If I can cut into Al's text in verse 23, Paul says that the church is his body. It is made full and complete with Jesus Christ who fills all things Everywhere with himself. So, 
our calling and our design as humanity, as, as humanity that has been redeemed, is to enjoy Jesus for all his worth. But it's not to stop there. It's to teach others to do the same. It's to enjoy Jesus and to teach other people to do the same. By the way, we can enjoy Jesus without necessarily being happy, right? An incredible lie that we can often take in this culture that is very consumeristic, that somehow our happiness or our joy is attached to good things happening in that moment. And that's very individualistic and very consumeristic, that somehow happiness depends on my individual needs being met. And that's just not what we see in Scripture. Tell that to Jesus who was nailed to a cross and yet went for the joy before him. Tell that to the Christian believers around the world, including those in our body, who are suffering and do not have happiness but have retained their joy. I'll tell you why. Because happiness is an emotion and joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Your happiness will change based on the way you rolled out of bed this morning. Your joy is given to you supernaturally. And you can experience the joy of the Lord in the most traumatic circumstances. And that's what the world needs to hear. And that's what they need to see when they look inside our community and see people not trying to be perfect, but sinning against each other and forgiving one another. Going through suffering and trials and yet retaining their joy in Jesus Christ. A covenant community, joy is based on that relationship and it always has been. Look at the garden. God spoke to Adam. He listened to Adam. He related to Adam and then to Adam and Eve. He spoke to the word. He listened to prayer. He related to community. Word, prayer, and community. We see it all throughout the scripture. This is the intent of humanity. That's why you were born. Jesus didn't just die on the cross merely to forgive your sins. He did that, but it was as a stepping stone to get you into relationship with him. The scriptures declare that the just one died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He didn't just want to clean you up and stick you in a corner where you wouldn't make a a fuss or a mess. He wanted to bring you into enjoyment and relationship with his holy father. the ability to fully enjoy God as we were designed to originally. The resurrection brings us to life and it restores our humanity. And Paul says in verse 19 and 20, all of the resources of heaven are pointed and focused in on you in order to make that happen. All you gotta do is breathe. Breathe it in. Breathe it out in community. Some of you that are very contemplative and love things being put in a simple way love terms like that. Enjoy Jesus. Oh yeah, totally. Others of you are more organized and you love bullet points and you hate stuff like that. You're like, that is so trite and simplistic. Give me a list. I want 12 things that I'm supposed to do. That's all right. I'll give you one thing. Al Abdullah once told me something that changed the way I worship. He said, you, you want to know that one of the best ways that you can enter into enjoying Jesus? Begin to discover how much he enjoys you. How do you enjoy Jesus? Begin to discover through scripture and prayer how much he enjoys you by grace. Listen, I already loved Brooklyn Tabernacle. 
I already thought the world of them, but I thought way much more of them leaving after I had experienced grace. That somehow these incredible group of Christians accepted me even though I was awful. So do you have a problem with thinking that you're supposed to somehow work for God to attain his favor? Is that the way your mind is geared? I need to read three chapters this morning so that I can gain the favor of God. I need to do something good. I need to feed that homeless person. I need to do all of this stuff. I need to lift my hands. I need to be a good Christian in order to win the favor of God. If that's how your mind works, I need to work more for God than begin to open up the Bible and concentrate on how much he has worked for you. As you're singing in worship this morning, or as you're reminiscing on Resurrection Sunday when 8,000 people gathered to glorify God and you remember, oh, the sound of all of those voices, I love singing, begin to wonder what it would be like if God were to sing. You think we're loud in this place? We ain't loud. The Bible declares that God's voice thunders over the water. What would it be like if God sang? And if God did sing, what would he sing? Zephaniah tells us that he sings over you. Songs of deliverance. As you're singing this morning, begin to reminisce on the fact that God is singing louder than you over you out of joy. Are you trying to somehow manufacture love towards God? Forget about that. Remember that God loved you first. In your prayer life, as you begin to pray, start to dwell on the fact that Jesus intercedes for you. Jesus, who is God, is praying to the Father, who is God, for you. God is praying to God for you. What does that even mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means all his prayers get answered. And what would God pray if he were praying for you? Jesus prays for you a lot. I'll just give you one of them. John chapter 17, verse 3. I pray that they would have eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. That's why you're here. To enjoy Jesus and to teach others how to do the same. Karl Barth was widely regarded as one of the most important theologians in the 21st century. It's kind of a big deal. I don't agree with everything that he's ever written, but I agree that he was kind of a big deal. Towards the end of his life, he summarized everything that he ever worked for in a ginormous volume of theology called Church Dogmatics. It would fill up an entire shelf It's made up of six million words summarizing everything that he has ever studied about God. During a trip in 1962, he came and visited America and during one of his his talks, he was asked a question, I think it was by a student or perhaps a journalist, uh, a startling question that hushed the building. The, The person asked him, Dr. Barth, you've written so much. You've written millions of words about who God is and what he has done and all of these intricate nuances about him. If you could summarize all of that in one sentence, what would it be? Not an easy task. Dr. Barth was not uh, hasty 
to open his mouth, he actually stood back, closed his eyes, and began to ponder the question. If I could summarize everything I've ever studied, six million words worth, how would I describe it? He opened his eyes, grinned a little bit, and gave his answer. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, whether you're not saved, or you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're a seasoned Christian, as we worship this morning and for the rest of this week and for the rest of this life, let your souls feast on the elementary truth of the gospel that has rocked the minds of the most staunch theologians and yet calmed the hearts of the smallest children. The gospel that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Heavenly Father, as we continue to approach you at the throne of grace, I pray that you would do what you have done throughout history, something that man is absolutely incapable of doing. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that in this room, Lord, as Peter would prophesy and declare that the morning star would begin to dawn in the hearts of men and women as we see you. I pray that in this house, Lord, you would save us from the ability to just go the religious route. I pray that you would save us from the tendency of growing numerically and dying spiritually. Save us from religiosity. Save us from routine. Save us from just going through human motions. Give us a glimpse of your glory. That somehow in the midst of this chaos, God, you designed us to chase after your heart. And before we ever knew you, you were chasing after us. God, give us a glimpse of the gospel. Draw us close to you and transform us and let it be said of us as was said to the prophet that the son of righteousness would rise in this place with healing in his wings. We need a touch of your healing, Lord. We pray that it would come. Holy Spirit, please come. In Jesus' name, amen.